And let's look at now Revelations part 2. I want to talk to you tonight about the letters that were sent to the seven churches. Now the reason that we're going through the book of Revelations, we shared last week, this is one of the, well it's the only book in the Bible that promises a special blessing for those who go through it. A special blessing for those who study it, a special blessing for those who internalize it, memorize it, think about it, meditate on it, and pay attention to it. This is a prophetic book. It's the last book in the Bible, Genesis, the book of beginnings, Revelation, the book of the end. The Bible is very clear that there is an end to life as we know it. And prophecy seems to indicate that that is right around the corner. This world is not forever going to go on, but God's going to bring life as we know it to an end. Now, let's look at a little bit of where we left off last week. Remember last time we saw the glorified Messiah standing in the midst of seven lampstands and seven stars. And so here is not the Jesus walking around in the first century healing the sick, raising the dead, teaching as a normal man, but Revelations 1 opens up with an incredible picture of the glorified Messiah. He is glorified. Hair white like wool, eyes like fire, feet like brass, a voice like roaring waters, like a roaring river, an authoritative commanding voice. And it showed him standing in the midst of these seven lampstands and seven stars. And remember, the stars were the angelos, that's the Greek word, or the messengers of the church, likely the pastors, the angelos. And the lampstands were the churches themselves, and there were seven in all. And remember I told you that the book of Revelation is the book of sevens. The number seven, which is the number for completion, until you get to 666. Six is not seven, it's one before seven, and six is the number for man. And so we saw seven stars and then seven lampstands, and those seven lampstands were the churches themselves. Now, Jesus is seen holding both the seven stars and the seven lampstands in his right hand. He's holding them. Can you say with me, thank God, I'm in his hand. And a two-edged sword came out of his mouth, a picture of judgment when he speaks. When Jesus speaks, especially in Revelations, it is in judgment. And he's bringing judgment to the entire world. And beginning at chapter 2, the risen Messiah now addresses seven churches. And this is what we're going to look at tonight. The seven churches that he, what we call, sends a postcard from the edge to. A postcard from the throne room of God he sends to these seven churches. And he gives each of them a message. Now as we look at the seven churches, we're going to see it might also have been prophetic that when he talks to these seven churches, all right, it may be also not just to the seven churches that existed in that day, but let me just read a quote. It's no coincidence that there is a fascinating general parallel between these seven churches successively considered and seven obvious eras or periods in the history of Christianity in the world. This is a divinely inspired account of the overall history of Christianity from the apostolic age until the second coming of Christ. So what he's saying there is, not only is he addressing the seven churches that existed in his day, but he may very well have been addressing seven ages or eras that the church would pass through 
until the second coming of Christ. And I really do believe that that's the case. And the reason that matters is because it ends with us, the church at Laodicea, the lukewarm church. And that's why I'm sharing this book with you and with our radio audience and wherever these tapes go, because church, we've got to stay lit. We've got to stay in the Word. We've got to stay full of the Holy Spirit. We cannot depart from the things of God in our day because in our day there is an apostasy. Churches and denominations are walking away from the Word of God and from the basic doctrines of our faith. So this is a warning to us tonight that, hey, as for me and my house, I'm going to serve the Lord and I'm staying with the Word and I'm going to walk in the Holy Spirit and I'm going to keep my lamp burning. And so let's look at these churches. The first church is Ephesus, and it's the lacking church. Ephesus is the lacking church, the fundamental church that failed. And that's the first church that he's going to address. And look at what he said. Now, first of all, here's the prophetic application to the Ephesus church, the age of the apostles. If you look at this first church, the first church era or age is the age of the apostles. Founded by Paul, the Ephesian church prospered under the shadow of Diana worship. To this congregation, Paul sent his marvelous Ephesian epistle, emphasizing spiritual riches, the spiritual walk, and spiritual warfare. The church at Ephesus symbolizes the apostolic age. That's the first age, the first era the church would pass through. The city of Ephesus, where this church was built, was the manufacturing center for the statues of Diana, the goddess of sex. Everybody say with me, there's nothing new under the sun. It was a city of immorality, existing off of temple prostitution and paganism. The church at Ephesus was surrounded by massive sexual perversion and personal temptation. So you see, we can't say we've got it worse than anybody's ever had it. Because even in the first century, in this church at Ephesus, they were surrounded by perversion in the city of Ephesus. It was everywhere. And Jesus' first comments are positive. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, he says, I know all the things you do. I want to stop right there. Do you think God knows all the things the church does? <laughs> that phrase, I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work. I've seen your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. So far, so good. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but they are not. You have discovered that they are liars, and you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. So their pluses were, they had worked hard. They had patient endurance. They were intolerant of evil. They had discernment and patiently suffered without quitting. Now, that's a great resume. That's a great little biographical sketch of this church. But Jesus is now going to home in on them about something else. He says, ah, but here's something negative. I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. You've lost your first love, another version says. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand. I think that's one of the scariest statements in the book of Revelation. You have lost your first love, and if you don't repent, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. 
which means I'm going to remove your favor, your anointing, your blessing. You're no longer going to be a city set on a hill, a light shining into the dark. I'm going to remove my presence, not your salvation, but my anointing and my presence from off of your church. Everybody say, oh me. I'm going to remove the lampstand from its place among the churches. So the Lord Jesus is in control of every local church, knows exactly what's going on in every local church, and has the power to remove his blessing off of any local church. That ought to put the fear of God into every local church and every pastor and every staff. Now, I want you to notice they hadn't lost their first love. Jesus said they left their first love. They didn't just wake up and say, oops, where'd it go? They walked away from their first love. And what was their first love? It was the principle of ministering out of love for him. Not for fame, not for fortune, not for money, not as a career decision, but ministering to people out of love for him. Here's the nugget. All ministry should be done out of love and devotion for Jesus, not for fame, money, or power. That's the message of Jesus to the church at Ephesus when it came to needing correction. And so I want to say to you and me tonight as we move to the next church, are we ministering out of love for him? Is our motive when we minister to people, is it love? Is it because we love him? That ought to be our motive. Care leaders, life leaders, lay people. Listen, our motive ought to be love for Jesus Christ, and that's the only true motive for true ministry. Amen? Let's go to the next church, the church at Smyrna. This is the loyal church. The persecuted church that persevered. Now, where is Smyrna in church history? Where is this era of the church? Here it is. It's the age of persecutions. For over two centuries, from Nero, who had Paul executed, until Diocletian in the early fourth century, Christians were intermittently persecuted, multiplied millions of them, died martyrs' deaths. The age of persecutions, the era of the church of Smyrna. Some were crucified or burned at the stake. Others thrown to lions or exiled. Ten great periods of persecution cataloged by Gibbon are indicated in Christ's prediction having persecution ten days. That's what he said to this church. You're going to have ten days of persecution and there were ten great periods of persecution brought on the church by the Romans. The city of Smyrna, where this church was, was one of wealth and greatness. And Jesus assures them that he is aware of their oppression and their poverty. Can I tell you once again, can you see with me the all-seeing eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ as he looks at every one of these churches? He knows they're being persecuted, and he knew they were going to be persecuted before they were. He actually tells them that in fact they are wealthy in what truly matters. You know what real wealth is? It's knowledge of salvation. Amen? Because you can be a billionaire and be totally lost and have nothing when you die. Now, their persecutions originated with false teachers that were rising up to oppose true Christianity. And Jesus says to them in Revelations 2.10, about these false teachers and their persecutions. Fear none of these things. You will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful to the death. 
Church, I tell you tonight, as you see a shadow crossing America, and it seems like every time we turn on the news, we hear of some celebrity slamming the church, persecuting God's people. I read one today. I'm not even going to say her name. A young, famous movie actress slamming the church, mocking our faith. As these things come, you know what I say to you? What Jesus said to them, fear none of these things. Be faithful even to the death. The ten days spoken of likely refer to the ten terrible periods of persecution unleashed by the Roman Empire from about 64 to 316 A.D. Jesus promised to them a crown of life to those that stayed true to the faith. And this crown is one of five crowns specifically promised for faithful obedience. Here's the nugget from Smyrna. Are you ready? Jesus knows exactly what you are going through and what you will go through and is there to strengthen you and reward you. Isn't it great how timeless the Word is? So if you're struggling to find a job, struggling against persecution, maybe your family's mocking you, friends are mocking you, paying a price for your faith, can I just tell you today, Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. His eye is on the sparrow, and if it's on the sparrow, it's on you and me. And He's going to reward you. Give the Lord a hand of praise for that. He's going to reward you. So there we go. There's Smyrna. Now let's go to the third church, Pergamos, the lax church. What was Pergamos? It was the compromising church that was corrupted. That's Pergamos. Now, where are they in church history? Where is this church era? Where is it in history? Well, it's the age of compromise. During this period, the Emperor Constantine, if you didn't know anything about this, you need to know this. The Emperor Constantine, who claimed to have been born again, who have met Christ, had a vision of him, declared Christianity the state religion. And then everybody was a Christian. So there was no need to be born again because you were declared a Christian by the emperor. And since everybody was now a Christian by state decree rather than a personal experience with God, Christianity began to absorb pagan practices. And in 431 at the Council of Ephesus, the title Mother of God was applied to the Virgin Mary, which instituted a new female figure for adoration. And paganism mingled and mixed with Christianity had a corrupt effect that lasted for centuries. Now, I'm going to be real bold tonight. Just step out a little bit and just tell you. Nowhere in the New Testament are we told to pray to Mary. This was something that came in during this church era, the third church era. And it was an era of error. Okay? And they were taught mother goddess worship. Nowhere in the Bible are you told to pray to Mary. We are never told that Mary can hear our prayers. Mary was just like you and me, chosen by God for an extremely special purpose, but she was just like you and me. And if you pray to her, she's not hearing you. We're to go straight to her son in Jesus' name. Two false doctrines had crept into this church. Here's the first one. The first is the doctrine of Balaam, Revelations 2.14. The doctrine of Balaam. He says, quote, 
This is Jesus talking to this church. I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. That's the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam that Jesus is talking about in Revelations 2 refers to the teaching and the advice of Balaam to Balak, the Moabite king. And what was his advice? To encourage his people to intermingle and intermarry with the Israelites, resulting in God's judgment. Balaam's message was a message of compromise, and Jesus condemns it. In other words, the doctrine of Balaam was the doctrine of compromise leading to corruption. Very important, folks, that we hear this because we're in an age of compromise. A little bit of Hinduism here, a little bit of Buddhism there, a little bit of Islam here, a little bit of meditation over there. And mix Christianity in with all the rest like a divine... Thank you, Lord, for confirming this word. I knew the Lord was with me in this one. We're in an age of compromise, and we're told, really, that the thing to do is kind of mix together your own little religious stew. But there's only one Savior, one God, one Messiah, one blood, one death, burial, and resurrection. His name is Jesus, and we're not to intermingle. The doctrine of Balaam is to intermingle many different things and mix it all up. And that's never, never the will of God. But that's the spirit of our day. Now, the second false teaching was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And this doctrine was that of sexual immorality, or what we would call hedonism with a spiritual twist. That was the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Revelations 2, 15 and 16, listen to this. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now notice, folks, when sin enters the church, Jesus takes it personally because he's the head. And he says, if you don't deal with this sin, I'm going to come to you with the sword of my mouth, which means judgment. He owns his church, whether or not his church owns him. Haley's Bible Handbook tells us of this other group, sexual vice was actually a part of Nicolaitan heathen worship and recognized as a proper thing in heathen festivals. Priestesses of Diana and kindred deities were public prostitutes. And this tried to get into the church. In Ephesus, the Christian pastors as a body excluded such teachers. But in Pergamum and Thyatira, while we are not to think that the main body of pastors held such teachings, yet they tolerated within their ranks those who did. And Jesus said, if the pastors don't deal with it and the people don't deal with it, I'm going to deal with it. Isn't that powerful? Oh, I'll tell you, I fear the Lord in the church. I fear the Lord in the church. I'm not scared to death of him like a phobia, like a fear of torment, but I respect the Lord in his church. Here's the nugget from this one. It's the responsibility of every Christian to discern what we accept in form of teaching. And it clearly matters a great deal to Jesus what is taught in the church. If he says, if you don't deal with it, I'm coming with the sword of my mouth. 
It matters to Jesus what is taught in his church. Amen? Now here's the next one. Thyatira, the loose church. And what was Thyatira? Decadent church. The decadent church that drifted into darkness. Let's look at it. The age of darkness. The dark ages is what this long period is sometimes called. This era of church history. After the fall of Rome around the end of the 4th century, the Holy Roman Church gained great power. Withholding the Scriptures from the common people, did you know that? The Roman Church of the Dark Ages would chain the Latin Bible around their pulpit. The common people were not allowed to have the Bible lest they pervert it. So the only thing you knew about the Bible is what the priest told you, and they weren't teaching it. And that's what made the Dark Ages dark. The Word was withheld from the people. You don't know what a blessing you've got in your hand right here when you hold your Bible. For a thousand years, these European people did not have access to the Bible like you do. They withheld the Scriptures from the common people and became largely a political organization, not a life-giving church. The church of this era helped plunge Europe into gross and dismal darkness. This era lasted a stunning thousand years. Jesus' opening words tells a lot. He says to this church, this is the message from the Son of God whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze or brass. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love. There it is again. I know everything you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all these things. Can you say with me, he knows about my progress. But watch this. We can almost feel the penetrating eyes of the Son of God as he peers into this local assembly. Yet, as with most of the other churches, there is a, quote, but I have this complaint against you. Almost all the postcard to Thyatira deals with a woman named Jezebel, a real woman, actual woman. This woman had introduced idolatry and immorality into this congregation. Now look at this now. Here's a congregation that had been improving, growing, experiencing some spiritual growth, and, and yet there was one person in there, a woman, and Jesus knew all about her. <laughs> she was seductive, she was persuasive, and she had introduced idolatry and immorality into the congregation. One person. She was, according to Jesus in Revelations 2.20, leading my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. This principle of bringing idolatry and immorality into the local church is soundly condemned by the risen Savior. When immorality is brought into a church, the risen Savior knows all about it, and he knows who brings it. I told you that this series wasn't going to be a jump up and shout and scream all the time. But isn't this good stuff? We need to know. Now watch this. He goes on. In fact, he promises a sobering word. Listen to this word. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. Jesus has targeted this woman and her sin and those that have gone into sin with her, 
And he's given a space to repent, which he always does. And if you don't take advantage of the space to repent, the Lord moves. And what he says he's going to do is very sobering. Suffering. It doesn't end there. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. This is the eye of the risen Savior searching his church. You say, well, Pastor Jeff, what does he mean he's going to kill her children? I kind of think that that might be a little bit symbolic in this. I think it might mean that which she has spawned spiritually, I'm going to kill it. So it's a very strong word. Everybody say amen or oh me. Here we are reading this on a stormy night. It's kind of apropos, isn't it? Now, the promise to Thyatira, where this woman had been operating, is, but I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually, I will ask nothing more of you. You didn't go with this, so I'm not going to ask anything more of you. You stood firm in purity. I'm not going to ask anything more of you. Except that you should hold tightly to what you have until I come. Everybody grab your Bible. Can you grab your Bible? Now, here's what the Lord is saying. Hold tightly to it. Hold tightly to it. You hold tightly to this word, church. I'm telling you, hold tightly to it. Hold tightly to it. Love it. Hold it close to your heart. Because it'll save your soul. He says, to all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all of the nations. Praise God. Isn't that powerful? Now let's go on. Here's the nugget from this church, Thyatira. What the world calls normal, such as sexual sin, Jesus views as the depths of Satan and should be avoided. We live in a day right now that is not slipping into immorality. It's in a free fall. I said it's in a free fall. It's not slipping down a slope. It has fallen off of a cliff. And that's why I say you've got to hold to the truths that are in this book. He says if you do, that's all I ask of you. And when the day comes that I return, I'm going to reward you. And don't believe the message of this culture when they try to call something normal that is not normal or right that is wrong or light that is dark or good that is bad. You see things and life through the eyes of the Word and the eyes of your God. And that was what Jesus was telling them. Now here's the fifth church, Sardis, the lifeless church. I love this one. It's the dead church that still had the lights on. It was the all dressed up and nowhere to go. Now, the dead church that still had the lights on, it's the age of Reformation in church history, the church era of Reformation. So how could it be Reformation when the lights weren't even on? Because God began to move in this abject darkness when the church had actually, for all intents and purposes, died. The Roman church of the Middle Ages, God finally moved and brought a Reformation. In the year 1517, Martin Luther began to preach the gospel. Martin Luther was a German monk who became a monk when he was walking down a path one day and a storm just like this kicked up and lightning hit a tree right next to him. 
scared him half to death. He fell on his face and said, Saint Anne, protect me. I'll become a monk. Thus began Martin Luther's monkhood. Okay? Martin Luther became a German monk. Now, he was brilliant. He was brilliant and he was very grieved what he was seeing in the Roman church of his day. He saw that the Roman church was dead. And so God spoke to him one day and brought this verse alive to him. The just shall live by his faith, not by works. And that one phrase, the just shall live by his faith, became his message. And he began to preach it like a man from another planet. And he started birth, God through him, what we call the Great Reformation. It was a move of God that shook Europe and helped break the shackles of the Roman Catholic Church. And we all here tonight owe a debt to what God did through Martin Luther. Now, in a parallel event, at the same time, Columbus, a Bible-believing explorer with ideas similar to Luther and other reformers, Columbus decided that the earth was round and desired to spread the gospel to the whole world, believing that Christ would return when all the world had heard the gospel. That's Columbus. And he discovered America. And when the first pioneers came over from England to America, they dedicated this land, can I say it tonight, to Jesus Christ. It was not dedicated. It was not dedicated to Allah or Islam or Buddha, or Confucius, or any other religion. They dedicated it to Jesus. Not just God, but Jesus. And don't let anybody in any way take that knowledge away from you and commit the crime of historical revisionism on your brain. Why do you think God blessed it? Why do you think he's used it? We sent missionaries all over the world. Was it perfect? No, it wasn't perfect. Was there sin? Yes. But it was dedicated to Christ in the best light they had. Now, Columbus wanted to see the gospel go all over the world. Sardis was a very old city, wealthy in textiles and jewelry making. The city had a prostitute. They all had prostitution temples to Diana, again, as well as mystery cults. And in these cults, emotional hysteria and bodily mutilation would take place right there in Sardis where this church was built. There was heavy occult activity, heavy immorality, and yet this church sprang up, and now Jesus is talking to it. The Sardis church had a reputation of being alive, but they were spiritually dead. Now, that's the truth about the church that was there in John's day. But if you want to say that this is the fifth era in church history, it's talking about the time when the church was dead and Reformation began to move. Revelations 3, 1 and 2 says, I know all the things that you do. There it is again. And that you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. I know the truth about you, dude. You got a reputation you're alive, but I know and you know you're dead. Isn't that scary? Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. (laughs) 
Wow. Now, even when it still had a little bit of life, even what was still kind of alive was almost dead, in danger of being dead, like their devotion, their dedication, and their zeal, their external appearance covered up an internal dying condition. The great physician felt their spiritual pulse and pronounced them dead. But if you'd gone up to anybody in Sardis and said, what do you think about them? they said, oh, wow, that's a happening place. Isn't it something that you can look alive because of activity, but you can be spiritually dead? Isn't that something? They may have been a beehive of organized activity. They may have had a reputation around town for being progressive, having a nice building, lots of money. But Jesus said they had a name that lived, but man looks on the outer appearance and God looks at the heart. Therefore, the glorified Savior, the head of the church, pierced through the facade and diagnosed their spiritual illness. Aren't we watching the Lord give x-rays to all these churches? Man, they're all getting MRIs. <laughs> he did not find their works perfect before God, which means literally they had not finished or completed their race, but they'd been sidetracked. And that's why they were dying. And I'll tell you the truth, church. You can start strong and end weak. If you start strong, you need to end strong. The reason they were dying, the reason they had a reputation for being alive was because they started right. But they were going on yesterday's fumes. They had gotten sidetracked, so they hadn't finished their calling. And because they hadn't finished their calling, they started dying. You may not know how important it is that you do what God's given you to do, but you better do what God's given you to do and finish it. And don't get out of his will, because the minute you get out of his will and you begin to drift, you begin to die. That's what happened to them. Well, Jesus was good to them. He said, I'm giving you a chance here. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. There's a verse Paul wrote, say to Archippus, finish the will of God for you. Finish the will of God, church. Now, here's the sixth church, Philadelphia, the loving church, the church with an open door. I like Philadelphia. You know what the thing about Philadelphia is? It's the one church he had no criticism for. But where is Philadelphia in church history? Well, it's the age of evangelization. The last several centuries, perhaps until the latter part of the 20th century, has been the era of worldwide evangelism. Christians have spread the gospel to all the continents. Hundreds of thousands of churches have been planted worldwide in this particular church era of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, the church of love, the church with an open door. You can name the evangelists that have come up during this time. D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham. Worldwide television, worldwide radio, worldwide outreach. Huge numbers of people coming to Christ. Unprecedented in world history. The church age of Philadelphia. And there are tens of millions of believers all over the globe right now because of this church age. 
Through radio, television, print, and computer, the gospel is being proclaimed on a mammoth scale. A rebirth of expectancy concerning the second coming of Jesus arose in the late 1800s and prevails to today. The age of evangelism, not the dark ages, the age of evangelism, the church of an open door. The loving church, Philadelphia, proclaims the love of God. The rapture of believers could occur at any time. Revelations 3, 7, Jesus talks to them. I know all the things you do. I have opened a door for you that no one can close. That's talking about evangelism. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Notice, these incredible things happen when they had little strength. Because in your weakness, he's made strong. Philadelphia is the only church in which Jesus finds no blemishes. He'd opened for them a wonderful door of evangelism. Even those in Satan's synagogue would become convinced that their God was the true God. Look at verse 9. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Incredible gospel success. That's Philadelphia. Okay. All right, we're coming to the church of Laodicea, and that is us. Laodicea is the lukewarm church, the rich church that nauseates Christ. Now watch this. Some believe that during the final stages of history on this planet, there will be no great worldwide revival. Although powerful revivals could come in the end times, they will be localized. Lukewarmness is the end time trait of professing Christians. I'm going to say that again. Lukewarmness is the end time trait of professing Christians. Departing from the faith will characterize the Laodicean church. Paul said in the end times, men will depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Men will depart from the faith. Jesus finds nothing in this church to brag about. There is not one affirmation. Their lukewarm spiritual condition is utterly distasteful to the Lord. According to this last postcard, Jesus would rather be hot or cold in the spiritual sense, he wants us hot for him or cold for him. But don't play the lukewarm game. Don't have one foot in, one foot out. Don't praise me on Sunday and live like the devil the rest of the week. Repent Saturday night and come back to church Sunday morning. He says, listen to this. The Laodicean church claimed wealth and prominence. But in God's sight, they had no real value at all. Listen to what he says to them in verse 17. The last church age, the last church era, Laodicea. You say I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Yet ever redemptive, he says to them, I counsel you to buy from me gold tried in the fire and eye salve with which to anoint your eyes that they may truly see. Now, it's my conviction here tonight as we come to a close that we're in the Laodicean church age. We are watching an apostasy take place in major denominations. They are taking the Bible, throwing it out the door. They are walking away from God. 
They're giving up on the blood, giving up on heaven and hell, giving up on the basic doctrines of the faith. They're walking away. And almost every day we read something about it. And it's a heartbreaker. And so the reason I'm sharing this with you tonight about these seven churches before we look at the breaking open of the seven seals and the great tribulation that's coming upon the world is church, I believe it's possible to walk with God, burn brightly, have your lamp filled with oil and stay in there with Jesus, in love with Him, though so much of the church walks away. He says, I want you to buy from me gold. Gold represents the deity of Christ here. I want you to have eye salve from me, which represents spiritual illumination by the Holy Spirit. These Laodiceans were seeing yet blind, rich yet poor, knowledgeable yet foolish. Lukewarmness is the end time trait of professing Christians. Now let me ask you a million dollar question. Does it look that way to you? Aren't we seeing a real backsliding away? Churches, you go into some of them and you don't know what they stand for. You watch on TV, you don't know what Bible they're reading from. You hear more about money and success than you do the blood and repentance and the cross and hell and heaven. It's the church of Laodicea. Departing from the faith, particularly the belief in the deity of Christ, the infallible Word of God, and the importance of genuine righteousness and sincere godliness characterize the Laodicean church. And we close with this. May God help us to keep the flame of zeal lit. The fire of first love ablaze. And the oil in our lamps fueled with the moving of the Holy Spirit. Can we stand together? And next week, John is going to be taken up into heaven. And he's going to see the one who alone is worthy to open the seals. Those seven seals are going to be released upon the world in the great tribulation. I want to tell you, church, I want the age of evangelization to be continuing right here. And I want Laodicea far from us. And I want us to be ablaze for him. How many of you feel that way? Amen. Give the Lord a hand. That's good. All right, well, let's bow in prayer. Father, we just thank you tonight that, Lord, as we read these incredible biographical sketches, these postcards from the edge to the seven churches, and we see the seven eras the church has gone through, ending with that Laodicean age. Lord, we thank you that there is going to be a remnant that love you with all their heart. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us to play a part in bringing in a great harvest of souls. Lord, I believe that we're going to see that. And I pray, Lord, that you will open that door that you opened to Philadelphia that nobody can shut. Now, will you breathe a prayer right now, dear church, and just say, Lord, help me to remain in my first love, to keep my heart ablaze for you, and not to be dulled by this age. In Jesus' name.